This sermon, Loving Our City, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, August 28, 2022, at Sovereign Grace Church. Acts 17, stand with me. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 16 through 34. By the way, it is good to be back with you all. Um, I was riding motorcycles, and riding motorcycles is great, but gathering with God's people is greater. And so, so grateful to be back here with you um, to do just what we have been doing all morning, we'll continue to do. Acts 17, verse 16. The gospel continues to advance in Europe. Amen. Verse 16, Luke continues. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us, For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. May be seated. Let's pray. Lord, I dare not step into this pulpit in my own strength, and so I ask that you would now fill me with your spirit freshly to preach your word. Lord, I pray for the the hearers in this room, that whatever, whatever we are feeling, whatever we are struggling with, however happy we are today, however sad we are today, that your spirit would allow us now to put all that aside and be engaged by you. For your word is living and active. It is profitable for all things. And your presence is with us, and you have intentions for us through this specific text this morning. So fill us all freshly with your spirit, that we might hear your word, that we might love your truth, and that we might walk in it by your grace with great joy and fruitfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have lived lived in Tucson for 17 years now. Time has flown by. And I can tell you this morning that I love Tucson. I love the city that God has put me and my family in. It, It wasn't always like that. I have come to love Tucson, really, is what I should say. I've always been a big city guy. Before we lived in Tucson, we lived in Phoenix. We lived in the East Valley, which I think by itself is bigger than Tucson. Uh, I worked in Scottsdale, and so it was just, we were always in the city. Uh, While we were up there, we spent a year at Pastors College in the D.C. area. If you've been to the East Coast, the whole East Coast is like one big city. Tucson is a small city. Took uh, Took me a while to get used to it. But I have come to love my city. I love the majestic mountains. Just right over here. Amazing. I love the unique desert. It's stunning, isn't it? It's only right here, by the way. I've come to love the rich Western history, even just outside. I love to ride my motorcycle to Tombstone with Ken Lotz. I love the Southwest architect, the style. It's beautiful. It's different. I've come to love the city that God has put me in. But here's the question that I have for myself and for all of you. Do I love my city enough? to see it for what it truly is, lost. And to tell it what it desperately needs to hear, truth. It's one thing to love the beauty of my city. It's another thing to love my city for the glory 
and renown of Jesus Christ? And those are two questions that surface from our text this morning. I think Paul, in this very popular text, helps us to love our city. There's so much here that we can do. But this morning, we're going to look at this text and and pay attention to two questions that I believe surface. And those questions will be our points. And the first one is, if I love my city, what do I see? And second, what do I say? What do I see above all things about my city? And what do I say to my city above all things? So let's look at this first point this morning. What do you see? When you see your city, what do you see? Notice in verse 16, Luke says, now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His And as he was in Athens, Luke says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, if you know anything about Athens, by the time we get to Acts 17, really Athens is long past its heyday. In in Paul's time, Athens was definitely a beautiful city, but it was past its heyday. But yet it still remained a cultural and philosophical and intellectual center of the known world. So you could imagine Paul in Athens. It seems that he was here alone, but you can imagine uh, being the intellectual giant that Paul was. He came out of the world of academia. He understood culture. He was very familiar with this city. He was very familiar with the first and second and third and fourth, fifth uh, centuries B.C. Of, of what a giant that Athens was in those different ways. I, I think that Paul visiting Athens would have been like a Civil War buff visiting Gettysburg. Paul would have been walking around Athens lost in amazement, connecting what he saw, not just the beauty of the architecture, but the history in that city, what that city has meant to the world over the past centuries. He would have been a kid in a candy store. He would have been like a giddy tourist. He would have been connecting dots I have no doubt. Athens was not Paul's city, but I have no doubt even before he got there, he loved Athens. I have no doubt that he at times longed to go, if I could only go to Athens. What city would you love to go to? Because there's something about it that personally connects with you. I think that would have been Paul with Athens. But it's interesting that that what caught his attention most was not the beauty of the city. It was, in verse 16, in the words of Luke, that it was full of idols. It was a beautiful city. It was an amazing city. But it was full of idols. John Stott says, what Paul saw was a veritable forest of idols. There, was, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. There were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In the Pantheon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. 
Elsewhere, there were images of Apollo, the city's patron, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diane, and Asclepius. The whole Greek pantheon was there, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. They were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble, and they had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. In the words of someone, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. I think we can be sure this, the beauty of Athens was not lost on Paul, but what he saw above all things was a city drowning in idolatry. And did you notice that Luke tells us what the effect of this raw paganism was? Notice in verse 16, Luke says that Paul's spirit was provoked. Something happened inside of him as he observed this beautiful city and realized it was a wash in idolatry. He was provoked. That is, he was deeply troubled. He was seriously grieved. As he observed the city submerged in idolatry, his heart was filled with righteous indignation. He was provoked. Thought this week about Martin Luther climbing the crawling up the holy steps in Rome. And as he observed what was going on, as he listened, he was provoked inside. Well, before Martin Luther crawled up this, the holy steps in Rome, Paul walked the streets of Athens, and he was provoked. And today, not much has changed. Even right here in our own city, the city that we love. What do you see? What do you see in your city, Tucson? Do you see? Do you see that though the mountains are beautiful and the Western history is rich and the people can be friendly, do you see that we live in a city submerged in idols? And we, we know, right, this, this is the fundamental problem with society, isn't it? And it's the fundamental problem with our own city, idolatry. Romans 1 makes it very clear. We have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of self. That, that is the height of idolatry. Idolatry comes in many different forms, but in its essence, that is what idolatry is. And that is what our greatest problem is. Tucson might not be the cultural and philosophical center of the world like Athens was, but like Athens, idolatry and paganism are raw all around us. And like Paul, we learn from Paul here. 
Paul was redeemed by Christ. He was indwelt by Christ. He knew that he was an ambassador for Christ. And therefore, his greatest zeal was for Christ. And so when he saw Christ being denied, when he saw Christ not having his rightful place in the hearts and lives of others, it affected him. Didn't matter how beautiful the city was. It didn't matter how much good the city had on the world. It affected him. It moved him. And so it should us. As we love our city, as we enjoy our city, the question is, do I love my city enough that I am provoked inside, that I am moved when I see the true reality of my city? It's lost. It's lost. People are, have set God aside And you know what God says? Remember the God we serve. Remember the God that you belong to. In Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, and I give it to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We serve a God who is jealous for his own glory and his own glory alone. And so, yes, something should stir up. If that spirit, his spirit, lives and dwells in us, then something should stir up inside of us as we see in the words of John Stott this veritable forest of idols right here in our own city. I love my city, but I hope I never love it in a way that makes me indifferent to the darkness and the oppression and the rejection of Jesus that fills my city. You know, before we move on, this should be our prayer. We learn from Paul this morning. We learn from Paul what do we see above all things. Our prayer should be, Lord, help me to feel. Help me to see as Paul saw and help me to feel what Paul felt. Because what he felt sprang forth from his love for Jesus, for his resolve to see God glorified. And it moved him. It moved him to open his mouth and speak. It moved him to say something. And that's our second point this morning. As Christians, as we see our city for what it truly is, lost, in need of the gospel message, how do we respond to that? What do we say? That's our second point this morning. And I want you to notice, Paul, (laughs) as Paul was provoked, he didn't fall, Luke doesn't say he fell into despair. 
Luke doesn't say that he gave up. Luke doesn't say that he cursed the city. You ever cursed your city? (laughs) I cursed Portland one time. I don't think I've ever cursed Tucson. (laughs) Sorry if there's some Portland fans out there. But, you know, there was a season when Portland was all over the news. Remember? Antifa was burning the house down. And I remember a moment that jolted me, sitting and watching this on TV. And you know what my response was? Let Portland burn. That place is a hellhole. Let it burn to the ground. We'll be better off. And I thought, Lord, I have lost sight of who I was, who you are, and who I am now because of what you and you alone have done in that moment. That's not what Paul does. Notice verse 17, Luke says that Paul, having been provoked by the idolatry in this beautiful city, he, from the synagogues to the marketplace, he, look at the word, reasoned. He reasoned with anyone who would listen. He shared, he persuaded, he argued for Jesus. He talked to people about a different kind of worldview, which we'll see in just a moment. He reasoned. He listened. He asked questions and he gave answers. He no doubt reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures. He no doubt reasoned with them as we will see using their starting place, using their worldviews to, if you will, back them into a corner and make a decision. Look at what, look at verse 18 says, there was one particular group that was listening. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In other words, Paul was preaching the gospel. Paul was preaching what he preaches in every city. The idolatry might have been great in Athens. The message was the same. Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. Now, one thing about Athens, philosophy was king in Athens. Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, over the centuries, these these kings of philosophy, they had made this city over the centuries great with their ideas about the meaning and the purposes, the purpose in life. In Paul's day, the the Epicurean philosophers, they tended to be deists. In other words, they, 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 they believed in God, they believed in Gods, but the gods were disconnected. The, the gods were uninvolved in their lives. And so they've got this, 
They, they lived with a holy indifference to the reality uh, or a whole, holy indifference to uh, humanity, and really they lived by the idea of chance and reason. Everything was, nothing really matters. And so their philosophy was pursue pleasure. It's a little bit like Paul said to the Corinthians. Hey, if our faith is in vain, go enjoy yourselves. Well, that, that was the philosophy. Uh, that was a, a central part of, of the Epicurean's philosophy. Live for pleasure. Do all you can do to avoid pain. Because tomorrow we die. Sound familiar? Enjoy yourself, because this life is all you got. So make your hay while you can. Live your best life now because you only live once. That's not new. (laughs) That goes way back. In fact, that goes all the way back to the garden. (laughs) Nothing is new under the sun. The Stoics were a little bit different. They tended to be pantheists. They, they, believed there, they believed that there was a spark of divinity, to use someone's phrase, a, a spark of divinity that, that was animated in all of creation. I had about a six-week conversation with actually a homeless gentleman a number of years ago who, who was a pantheist. And he talked about how God is in that bush in the parking lot at Starbucks. That, that was the idea that that, that, that the gods, there was a spark of divinity in all of creation. God exists all around us in his creation. As someone put it, God was the world's soul. So, with no sense of divine guidance, Stoics, the goal of their life was just simply to rise above it. To grin and bear it, to take the punches, to do the best that you can do to get along. Doesn't really matter. Sound familiar? Stuff happens, man. Just deal with it. I hope, by the way, I hope you never get that counsel from any of your pastors in this church <laughs> or each other. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. These are the folks, these are the worldviews that that Paul is up against as he is engaged by these intellectual men, these philosophers of the day. And, And if you keep reading in verse 21, you'll notice, if you go down there, you'll notice that these groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics and others like them, they spent their days pontificating on a rocky hill. Okay, there's a rocky hill just outside of the city limits, and it stood in the shadow of the Acropolis where all the amazing buildings stood of Athens. It was called the the Areopagus. I'm sure that you have heard of it. Some have referred to it as Mars Hill, but, but it was the meeting place for the religious and judicial and philosophically minded uh, giants of the time. Think ancient TED Talks, except for a lot longer. (laughs) And on this day, as they gathered, they were curious about what this foreigner 
What is he babbling about? Resurrection? Jesus? It was new. See, that was part of that was part of Mars Hill. You went there not only to pontificate your own view of life, but you wanted to hear about the new stuff as well. So they gave Paul the stage. And look what happens in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, before we get to what Paul proclaimed, when Paul calls them religious, he's not validating their paganism as a positive. I think what he's doing, I think he's acknowledging some common ground here, and that is he's affirming how God has made them. He's made them worshipers. And because of the fall, they are worshipers who are feverishly longing for something. They're searching for something more. They're trying. That's the point, right, of philosophy. What is the purpose? What is the meaning of existence? And so Paul sees as he walks through the city, these altars of worship. And he says, I, I perceive that you're religious. I perceive you are worshipers. He's worshiping the wrong God. But isn't that the way it is? As human beings, we were created to worship. We just can't find what we're supposed to be worshiping. And our lives are a feverish act of searching. Last night, uh, the pastoral team, we took our wives on a triple date. We try and do that once a quarter just to enjoy one another, build our friendships. And by the way, thank you for your generous giving because we couldn't do that if you weren't generous givers. But last night, we went to an escape room. You ever been to an escape room? So we went to this escape room and you know we walk in, six of us, Small room, things that just seem irrelevant all over the place, and the buzzer went off. And immediately, as soon as that buzzer, we were frantically looking around for clues and picking everything up. And what's that? What's that number? That's got to mean something. And what about this over here? Our mission was to find the diamonds that were stolen or go to prison for the rest of our lives. So we were looking. Like crazy, what's that? Tom, what about the, try this code. Oh, what's, is that light up there? I mean, we, and then we, we couldn't figure it out, so we need another clue. So I'd go over and hit the clue button. Okay, it's quiet. Listen, everybody listen to the clue. The lady would chime in, give us a clue. And then we were right back to it, feverishly looking all over the place. We were, we were searching. Well, that's a comical but sad picture of humanity, <laughs> If we listen closely, if we observe carefully to the world around us, 
Here's what we realize. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our, our, uh, our classmates, they're searching for the diamonds of life. Our city is searching for purpose and for meaning and for relevance. They are searching They're wondering how to to connect the dots of life. Why do I experience what I experience? Why does what happened happen? If God exists, then why do mass shootings occur? How do I connect and reconcile evil with a God who is love? How come my life is going so poorly, but that person's life is going so well? How come no matter how much I drink or how, much, or how sexually active I am or how successful I am in the workplace or how many friends I have on social media, how come none of it, none of it is working? How come I still feel lost? How come I still feel empty? They're frantically running around the room searching for the right pieces to put the puzzle together. They're looking for a philosophy, a worldview to put everything into. And in our darkness and longing, we fervently turn to idols. In our city's darkness and longing and searching, they turn to what Jeremiah 2.13 described as cisterns that hold no water. It's into that universal reality that has, was the same in Paul's day that Paul proclaims an entirely different worldview. Notice three things about it. First, notice in verse 24, he says, this I proclaim to you, using the altar, if you will, to the unknown God as his text, if you will. Using that as the common ground. You are worshipers. I see you to be religious So you believe in gods. Let me proclaim the God that is unknown to you. And notice how he does it. First, he he says God is the creator of all things. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. Paul introduces the doctrine of God here. He begins with the doctrine of God. In contrast to the Stoics, God is not a part of the creation. Here's where I need you to start. God is over creation. He is the creator 
and Lord of creation. He cannot be limited. He cannot be limited to a temple or localized in a bush. He cannot be confined to an engraving into a stone altar. He stands separate from the rest of creation. He stands above the creation that he created. In a word, he is transcendent. Let's start there. In the beginning, there was God. So he says, listen, God is the creator of all. He's not part of the creation. He's above it all. Second, notice what he says. He says that God sustains all things. Notice verse 25. It says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, listen, this God who created all things, he needs nothing. He needs nothing. He, he is self-existent. We need him because we are not, but he does not need us. He does not need your altars. However, in his mercy and in his common grace, he, he sustains all that he creates. He gives us what we need. He gives us life, Luke says, and breath and everything. The Lord, the creator and the Lord of all things is providential. He is acting, actively involved in all things, moment by moment, giving his creation all that it needs to continue in its existence nanosecond by nanosecond. He says this, this unknown God created all things. But not only that, he sustains all things, even you. Your very breath comes from him. And then he says that God ordains all things. Notice verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, the God you call unknown creates and sustains, and he is personally directing the affairs of nations and men. This is the pride hit. Tell me that I'm dependent on someone or something, and it hurts my pride. Tell me that I need someone or something, and it's an ego blow. He says, he says, your coming and your goings are in the hands of the God that I proclaim to you. Do you see what Paul has just done here? I don't know how many more words he spoke than what Luke recorded here, but he has just destroyed their humanistic worldview. So much for your deism and your pantheism, so much for your pathetic pantheon of Greek gods, Paul says, no, the unknown God is the one true 
and living God who is unmatched, uncontainable, and transcendent in every way. And yet, look what he says in verse 27. He says, they should seek God. You should seek God in the hope that that you might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. And now he, he uses their own words against them because he now uses the words of the philosophers. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So the God that Paul has just proclaimed as transcendent He says, oh, and by the way, he's at the same time imminent. (laughs) He is uncontainable, but not unattainable. He is incomprehensible, but not unknowable. He is wholly other than us, but he is not unrelatable to us. He is near He can be found. This transcendent God who reigns above all your little gods. The one who created all things. Yeah, that's a mind-boggling, create all things out of nothing. The one who sustains everything second by second. Yeah, that's a mind-blower. The one who has determined all things. Yeah, that's a brain-twister. You can know him. He is transcendent. But at the same time, he is imminent. And then, Paul so, Paul says, so seek him. The God that you, the God that has been unknown to you, he doesn't have to be unknown to you. Seek him. Look what he says in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and and, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see what Paul does here? He, he paints this huge picture of the doctrine of God. You have the doctrine of creation. You have the doctrine of providence. God is involved in every aspect of your life. He is not detached. And you cannot contain him to creation. He stands above it. But seek him because he can be found. How? Through repentance and faith. He preaches the gospel. This transcendent God is imminent and he is known Through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul has already preached the gospel in verse 18. They didn't like it. They might have thought it was irrelevant. And Paul says, let me tell you why the gospel is not irrelevant. (laughs) Because there is a God that exists. And he shows that the only way to truly know this God that they call unknown is through the gospel. The man, notice in verse 31, that he appointed. Your idolatry 
Gentlemen, your idolatry has separated you from God. And he is patient. But he has appointed a day when everyone will be judged according to his righteousness. And that's a judgment you cannot withstand on your own. You must know this God through the man he appointed, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and was raised for the forgiveness of your sins. He died for your sins and he was raised for your justification before a holy God who reigns supremely over all things and is bringing everything about history to an end, which is ushering in a kingdom where he will dwell with his people and his people will dwell with him, free from sin and sorrow. Go read Revelation 21 this week and let your heart be thrilled. So seek God. He can be found. Repent and be saved. Jesus did it all. I think one of the things we learn here is that the doctrine of God is part of the gospel. When the commentators called it the necessary backdrop to the gospel. John Stott said, many people are rejecting the gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. We know the gospel is not trivial. It's essential. But you see what Paul has done here? He gave them the backdrop. He told them, this is why the gospel is essential. This is why you need a savior. This is why Jesus had to come. Because there is a God who exists. He created all things, and that includes you. And you know what that means? It means that you are accountable to him. You ever said to your kids, I brought you into this world, I'll bring you out of this world, I'll take you out of this world. I love Jerry Bridges' book, Who Am I? It's all about who we are in Christ, but you know how he starts in chapter one? He starts with this. God created all things, including you. That means you're accountable to him. Now let me talk to you a little bit about doctrine of sin. <laughs> now let me tell you your dilemma. Oh, but God can be found through a man named Jesus. Amen. And so repent and come to him. Amen. But I think one of the things that's important here is as we love our city, as we give them the message of Christ, let's make sure that we frame that message and why it's so critical. If you tell me that I'm a sinner, I'm going to go, why? But let's meet people with the God who is there with the God who exists. Because I think then people will go, oh, what do I do? And like Paul, we 
we bring the gospel in. Repent. Believe in the man that he appointed to take your sins away. Listen, Paul helps us to love our city by seeing what it is lost and saying what it needs to hear the truth of God and the gospel. He goes on in verses 32 to 33. also prepares us for what to expect. You'll notice there in verse 32 and 33, there were three different responses. They all heard him, some mocked, conversation was over. (laughs) Get this guy off the hill. Some thought, hmm, interesting. Not convinced, but I want to hear more. They were open but cautious. Maybe you have people in your life that are just like that right now. But then notice in 33, some believed. Some believed. And Christians are now walking the streets of Athens. The gospel continues to advance in Europe. So church, as you go out there this week, be hopeful Go love your city like Paul loved Athens. See it for what it is. And tell them what they need to hear.